0: Hi, this is Aaron Douglas. I'm Chief Tyrrell in Battlestar Galactica, and you are listening to Galactica Quorum Online.
1: You go, yeah, that's not going to work out well.
2: See, now you can't play the game anymore. He <laughs> got the trash! <laughs> <laughs>
3: Hello, welcome to the Galactica Quorum.
1: It's a fracking podcast.
3: It's a fracking podcast about Bastar Galactica and Caprica. This is episode 87. My name is Brian. I'm
1: Dimitri. I'm Byrne. And I'm Jesse.
3: You can find us at galacticacorum.com, and our email is gquorum at gmail.com. That's spelled G-Q-U-O-R-U-M at gmail.com. And our voicemail, 301-358-5175. You can follow our every move on Twitter. Our Twitter name is Galactica Quorum. That's one word. We also have a Facebook page where you can find out information as well. Okay, I think we have a lot of time zones represented here. We have East Coast, me and Dimitri. We have... I'm Central. And on the West Coast... San Francisco. Yep. Yeah. want to mention that we have not listened to the official Sci-Fi Podcast. For this episode, we'll be talking about the Caprica episode, There Is Another Sky. I haven't watched previews for the next episode. We will not be discussing any spoilers, but we'll be doing speculation. Again, we want to plug the new podcast, Geek Quorum where we discuss sci-fi movies, sci-fi TV shows, sci-fi topics. The website is geekquorum.com, and you can look on iTunes for that. We'll be giving away a book signed by Richard Hatch as part of our launch for the Geek Quorum podcast, so check that out. All right, let's move into some email regarding some of the previous episodes for Caprica. This one comes from Skiznot, who is our composer for music for the Geek Quorum, actually. He writes that he doesn't agree with calling the show soap opera, but he says, I suppose I know what some people mean when you call it that. I'm finding Caprica more comparable to shows like HBO's Deadwood and Rome. Without getting too much into semantics, the main difference is that soap operas are melodramatic. For example, if Zoe wanted to run away to Gemini to be with a boy that her parents didn't approve of, that might be soap opera-ish. But she was going away because she was age-appropriately challenging societal norms and exploring alternative philosophies. I'd actually say she was probably running away with a boy in a very impulsive, teenagery way, because that was sort of a rebellious thing to do. But I I do take the point.
2: Which his point is well taken, because I think the show is trying to reach a different audience. It remains to be seen whether it's going to succeed or not.
3: Yeah. He then writes, on the issue of the cross-colony internet, he says, I got the impression that the colonies were in different star systems, in which case they would have to have faster than light communication, which I don't know if they ever mentioned was a technology of theirs. I've always thought it would make for an interesting story if it was faster to go to another colony in person than to send an email that would take four years traveling at the speed of light to get there. That's a good point. I did consider that after we did that episode, and it made me think that I don't think that they've ever explicitly said what the state of the colonies is in terms of the distances apart. Maybe on some non canon comic book or something like that, they might have spelled it out. But in, in the show itself, I don't think they've actually really defined it. It kind of does matter because either they're in a small star system where the planets are kind of local to each other or if they're even within like a little star cluster, that's a big difference because they have to travel a light years, literally, even if it's a short distance to get somewhere else. So I could see that communications between different planets would be limited. I just kind of wonder which way they're going to go. If I've always been a fan of the Firefly model where it's a huge star system with like, I think, In Firefly, they said it was like 400 planets and moons or something. And that just worked out really well. It made it possible for travel and for communication. But they were still far enough apart where it wasn't just like you could hop on a little shuttle and get to the next planet.
1: And partly with the difference in cultures that they're establishing Just like because the planet Earth, everyone was so distance away because it took so long to travel. You developed a different culture. So I'd argue that there has to be some kind of distances for all the planets to have such diverse cultures.
2: These are the kind of things I try not to think about at all. (laughs) I think it's what gives um, sci-fi geeks a bad rap because we tend to obsess about these little details. Where personally, I'm just much more willing to kind of give the writers license to do whatever they need to do to tell the story. Except if they violate certain important rules, like if they really screw up the science in an egregious way, like you have to give them, you know, certain latitude with science. But if they do something that is patently impossible and from what we know of things like that's one thing. Otherwise, just kind of let it go.
3: That kind of leads us into our next correspondence with this voicemail.
0: Okay, I just listened to your latest podcast about Caprica, and um, I have some issues, so I thought I'd send them on voicemail. First of all, I don't particularly care for your definition of science fiction. Suffice it to say, i not... To get into particulars, by your definition, I'm not sure Stranger in Strange Land fits science fiction, or if I understood your definition correctly, it is fluff, which I completely disagree with. Also, some of your criticisms, Caprica, I think are overblown. For example, the whole going to Geminon thing. The only thing Zoe knew about going to Geminon, or the Avatar knew about going to Geminon, is that once they got to Geminon, something was going to happen. So she has no other reason to believe that she can do this through a V, whatever. I do believe they're connected. Um, the whole Toron thing. Toron's worship Aries. Sam's got a bull in his car. That tells you something about them and it's something they're trying to tell you about them. There's a lot of little things that I think you have decided to pick on and I'm not really looking at it, but not mine. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what it feels like. Don't get me wrong. I think the show has tons of room for criticism. However, I think you're overanalyzing a bit on some of this stuff. So, just my two cents. But the biggest thing that bothered me was your definition of science fiction. So, bye. Thank you.
3: Before I get to the science fiction thing, the reason there's a bull in Sam's car is because he's a tauron. As in Taurus, the bull. If there's a bigger meaning, let me know. I'm not really sure what more we're supposed to get out of that. That seemed pretty obvious to me. Now, as for the definition of sci-fi, let's revisit what we said
0: what sci-fi
3: sci-fi is the fantastic which we cannot achieve now or possibly never can but it's used in a way that if it's done well it's used in a way that will tell a story which will enlighten us about things about our current society you can have sci-fi that does none of that and it's just a sci-fi story it's fluff it's just
0: pulp no i love your by the way everything that ryan just said wasn't written it was from his head
2: you obviously can't see it, but I'm doing the wavy arms when
3: he was doing it. <laughs> so was I. <laughs> well, that's the intention. No, um, so it would help if the caller had told us what his definition of sci-fi was, or how ours. Your call back, or how ours was exactly wrong. But the best I can do is just defend my definition. Basically, what I said, just to reiterate, was a story, which a setting or a device. As something that we do not have now in our current technology, or we may never have because it just truly is impossible. And I said that if it's done really well and it gives us a societal lesson, that is what the best of sci-fi can achieve. But if it doesn't, then it's just it's an entertaining story. So as far as an island's stranger in a strange land, I mean that story is about a human who is raised by Martians on Mars. Uh, To me, that's something that's not possible in our current timeline. So that, for me, falls under science fiction. I don't need to go any farther, I don't think. so.
0: What does the dictionary say?
3: Well, the dictionary, we could go to Wikipedia, but there's that's just the thing. If you go there, there's a whole section on Wikipedia about there's literally dozens of different definitions about science fiction. And a lot of people have strong opinions about what it is exactly. And there's others that say, you'll know it when you see it.
0: Is it kind of like a art is in the eye of the beholder? Exactly. Kind of thing?
3: I mean, some people, going back to that podcast where we discussed this topic, we talked about Star Wars. And for some people, Star Wars is not sci-fi. Star Wars is considered by some to be space fantasy. They're on crap. And, you know, I mean, let, let's cut that shit out. I understand that it uses the Force and there's, you know, crazy stuff like that. But, I mean, come on, let's get real. It's got spaceships. It has hyperspace. It has lasers. Cut it out.
2: The key in my mind is science fiction as a genre is always paired with fantasy. Like, it's science fiction slash fantasy. In that, I think science fiction is a subgenre of a larger genre of fantasy, where it differentiates itself in, I think, perhaps the reliance on science to establish certain laws and establish what's kind of plausible within the universe. You can have sci-fi that establishes its own laws of physics. Star Trek is a kind of a a good example of that. Uh, But the difference that separates Lord of the Rings from... Star Wars, right? They're both fantasy. Maybe I'm just digging a hole for myself here. But the important part is, is all of it is fantasy. You have to have a certain license with fantasy to do whatever. I guess it's just the question of how science enters into the, the universe that is created.
1: The Dead Zone is considered genre. It's a science fiction show. And there's nothing about it except when Johnny touches someone, he reads their mind or sees their future. Same thing with Medium or something, another show like that. It's maybe not hard science fiction, but there's a lot of different shades and there's a lot of different genres out there. But this fantasy science fiction is, there's just a little something different. A little something that is either that we don't have now, that we think we will in the future, or something that we think we'll never have. Right.
0: Here's a question, Brian. If a couple hundred years from now, stuff that's in Star Wars starts to become reality, does Star Wars cease to become science fiction?
3: I wondered about that. Arthur C. Clarke, one of his things that he once dreamed up was this thing called a communication satellite. What an incredible science fiction idea. Well, guess what? It came out to be true.
1: Communicators on Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, that is a cell phone. Right. It is, in fact, they've talked about that, that the designer of the first flip flown was thinking of
3: a communicator. So I guess if the person in the future was to write a story, it would not be science fiction because it's their contemporary society. But you can certainly classify the art when it was written at the time as science fiction and keep the genre. I mean, 1984, for example, there's no regime that is quite like that. We've come close, perhaps some parts of the world, but you can almost see that actually happening but i would still think that it still classifies as science fiction because it was written decades ago and in Envisioned a day future a different i guess it comes down to your intent if you're envisioning a different type of future if you're envisioning something that is dystopian or it's or utopian it doesn't matter it, you're projecting a different future and again science fiction the definition covers settings it covers devices it covers perhaps races or or different alien you know it's a wide swath of different aspects and elements that it covers so sorry the definition didn't quite hit the mark with specific
2: i would add on to this the question is is what are we going to talk about on the quorum because if we end up talking about the science of it i actually think the show is a failure if the show is compelling enough we are talking about the social implications of the show and what some of the meanings are behind the science and the conversations that it kicks off tangentially from the science that's a successful show because then it's about the characters, then it's about the story, then it's about the drama. And in a grander level, it's about the social aspects and meanings of the show. The science really should be secondary. As soon as we start dwelling on interstellar travel and whether it's possible and that's what we're focusing on, I feel like the show is steering us in the wrong direction.
3: Yeah. There's things in this episode we'll talk about, which I'll bring up because I think from a production standpoint, it seems an odd choice, but it has nothing to do you know, with, Well, I mean, we could pick all day about why does the robot do this? But I think as science fiction fans, we sort of know to ignore a lot of that stuff. Like if someone like my wife, who does not watch science fiction or care about it, was to watch a sci-fi show, immediately the, one of the things they do, these neophytes who are not familiar with it, they notice things and they ask questions about it. Like someone in my office who saw Avatar, one of her main complaints was, I just could not buy that they have technology to make these blue people, but they couldn't fix his back. And I was like, well, they explained that. They said that it was very expensive. But she's like, no, 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 they, they have the technology. They can do it. She couldn't get past that one thing. For her, technology was all equal. If one thing worked here, that meant it worked for everything. It just wasn't a hurdle that she, as a non-science fiction person, could get past.
1: But you do that for all shows. If you watch Grey's Anatomy, you're going to say, no hospital is going to let that many people have sex in an on-call room. Right. I mean, they would have been suspended or they would have been gone or things would not go to that level. But you buy the premise, you buy the bit and you're engaged in the story. It either works for you, it doesn't. And if you're watching and saying, hmm, I just don't know if I buy that they're really going to be able to live in this virtual world all the time, then you're not buying the story.
2: They have to sell the story. I'll buy anything as long as it's a good sales pitch, right? Like, bad sales pitch, I ain't buying it. So the context is key in maybe possibly fighting for a good segue out of this conversation. I'll say that one of the mistakes I think they made early on is trying to explain everything too much. So, for example, I was thinking a lot about the U87 and Zoe especially in the most recent episode, which I know we haven't kind of transitioned into yet. But I think they made a mistake by definitively placing the consciousness of Zoe in the U87 chassis. It would have been a much more interesting story if that question was left up to the reader's mind as to whether Zoe still inhabited that robot and how much of her consciousness and awareness was imprinted on the robot. But you always had to deal with the robot you never were kind of transitioning between using this silly trope of seeing Zoe and then seeing the robot. Like always, see the robot and have the question in the back of your mind: like, how Zoe is this robot? Right? Is it just a little bit Zoe, or is it fully, completely, consciously Zoe? I think they've done a story overall a disservice by trying to explain that so completely, both visually and in all the other ways mm-hmm. they explain it. It would be just better to you know, questions are good. It's like lost. I'm going to go off on it. Did you <laughs> ever see the great Ted speech about J.J. Abrams gave? No. I encourage everyone to see it. Post it on the, on the website. But his 15-minute speech is about the best purchase he ever got. He got it a kid at a magic shop. It was a mystery box. You pay $15. It's a wooden box. It has a question mark on it. You don't know what you're getting. And he says he carries that box around with him everywhere he goes in all of his various studios. And he always wonders, should he open the box? And he says, no, because the question about what's in the box is actually more compelling and interesting than actually knowing. That, I think, speaks more to kind of what makes, say, Lost really good. And aspects of Battlestar Galactica made it really good because there were ultimately so many unanswered questions that kind of kept you, pulled you along uh, with the story.
3: I think you're right about the pilot Caprica movie and the fact that at the end, we're given that little reveal that Zoe's in the U87. And I can trace that to almost every Ron Moore script that he does for pilots. I've read them all. (laughs) I've read the virtuality script. I read the Caprica script. I read the Battlestar script. And if you look at them, there's a commonality through all of them. And that is that there's always a twist at the end. In Battlestar, the big twist was Cylons come to Ragnar Station and they open the doors. And sure enough, Doral is standing there and he is indeed a Cylon. And then Boomer comes up and she's asylum. That's like the big switcheroo. And then in Caprica, the big reveal is that Zoe is, in fact, alive, so to speak, in the U87. And in Virtuality, the show that no one watched last summer on Fox, there was a switcheroo at the end with the main captain dying and then someone resurrecting inside this virtual world. Which, ta-da, sounds like Caprica, doesn't it? I don't know if that's just sort of like his tell, the way he writes first stories, but it might just be a device that most writers use to hook a network into saying, here's a good story and I'm going to give you a little carrot at the end to make you want to see more. Maybe that's just something that almost intrinsically has to be involved in a pilot script because if they conclude too much, then there's no reason to buy more episodes. But I think they could have just left it open ended because there's already a universe there. There's so much that we are familiar with that they didn't need a shocker bit at the end. You're right, they could have left it As a question is, is she roaming around there inside the network somewhere?
0: So what is science
1: fiction? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I think I need to put alcohol in my diet, Dr. (laughs) Pepper.
3: Okay, I think we're ready to move on to our current episode. Time for the recap. I try to keep references to the Matrix to a minimum. So here is the recap for the episode, There Is Another Sky. Joseph Adama is having a bad case of the Mondays just can't seem to get himself off the couch and out of the apartment. If he only knew that Tamara is having a hell of a time of it in the V-World. Desperate to escape that grim, timeless domain, she stumbles into the den of a shady gangster lady, Vesta. When the bullets fly, as they inevitably do in V-World, Tamara takes a slug but doesn't de-res. Knowing that Tamara takes a beating but keeps on ticking, Vesta says, You do a favor for me, I do a favor for you. Tamara is escorted by a gamer geek to an even more illicit virtual realm, New Cap City. A world without rules and controls, without border or boundaries, a world where anything is possible. Here's the one rule that applies. If you die, you're out of the game. The Gamer Geek shows her the target, a fat cat kingpin that's sitting on a huge bank account. Meanwhile, back in regular Caprica, Daniel's leadership of his company is being questioned. Amanda gives him the supportive spouse pep talk that DeWolf first made famous back on Pegasus. Just substitute, because you're an Adama with, because you're a Greystone. Sure enough, Daniel makes a convincing argument in front of the board, Helped by the somewhat intimidating presence of the U eighty-seven, this he proclaims is our future. One-eyed and Peck make it one-armed robots. Sam convinces Joseph to hold the Torah memorial service because getting matching tattoos could be a terrific bonding experience to share with his son. At that moment, in New Cap City, Tamra is pulling off the bank job, but Vesta has no reward for her because she's figured out what the Caprica cops haven't: that Tamra died in the maglev bombing. Tamara goes rogue, knocking off Vesta. She gives Gamer Geek a mission: find my house in the real world. Joseph is finally in a good place when there's a knock on his door and the gamer delivers a message from his dead daughter. So many questions. Who was that kid? Was he really sent by Tamara? Does my health insurance cover laser tattoo removal? Watch out, New Cap City. There's a new sheriff in town and she's pissed. Not to mention packing heat. Roll credits. Okay. So do you have any initial comments about this episode?
1: I like the episode a whole lot. One of my concerns when we talked about this several episodes ago is that I didn't want to see a show that said how the Cylons came to be as the main theme. That doesn't really interest me. I don't think there's enough intrigue in there. This episode showed something else. Tamara's story intrigued me. Now, I guess I'm the only science fiction geek in the world that's not seen all three Matrix movies. So maybe that's why it didn't strike, you know, as very repetitive to me. It thought up a lot of ideas without preaching to us, you know, is she real? Is that life real? Can you be immersed too much in the spiritual world? And I cared about her story and I thought she was a little bit of a badass and it made for a very entertaining that part of the
3: episode. Before we delve into other people, I'll just give you some input from some of our listeners. I got a tweet from Andrew, who wrote, I think I figured out Caprica. It's a cross between Terminator and Matrix, but without the time travel and kung fu. On a less positive note, on our Facebook page, Fergal wrote, After watching There Is Another Sky, I'm convinced that the only sci-fi the Caprica team is even remotely concerned about is the level of Captain Picard's film noir holodeck adventures. It's pathetic. I think there's diverging viewpoints, basically. I am of two minds myself about this show right now on the one hand it obviously is never going to be a true connection to bsg i think those of us wanting to uh have a nice seamless pathway from here to the start of the miniseries it's just not going to happen so on that level the connection it's bad but if i scrunch up my eyes and shake my head and then look up and watch the latest episode with the idea that it's just a sci-fi tv show i thought it was the best of this series so far
2: I agree. I think looking back, I think the last episode and then this episode will be remembered as where the series really started to turn a corner. I don't know if it's completely rounded the corner, but it's certainly starting to veer, I think, in some directions that I think are really good. Yeah,
3: that's the thing. It's the directions they're taking, because at least now it has some potential. Before, it had two major knocks against it. One, it didn't feel at all like Battlestar to me. And number two, the direction that they had was just not compelling. The characters were boring. The whole U87 standing there was boring. (laughs) But now they seem to have a direction. Now, it remains to be seen how far they will take it, whether this New Cap City arc will end in an episode or two or actually mean something. And I know it's an utter rip-off of The Matrix. There's no way around that. I know the connection of BSG seems to fade with each episode on several levels, but with this, I've come to accept it begrudgingly, and I can view the show on its own merit, and it was very appropriate that they had this, in this episode, the memorial service where Joseph had to say... I say goodbye to my wife and my daughter. They had to officially say, okay, I'm letting them go. It's almost as if that's the way it was now with Battlestar Galactica for me. Because I was like, all right, this show is never going to be Battlestar Galactica. It doesn't connect on the same way. It doesn't seem like it's in the same universe almost. I just have to watch the show in a different way and not have the same expectations. I want
2: to talk about The Matrix for a second. Because, of course, the parallels are obvious. The thing about the Matrix is that there were consequences in the real world for what was happening in the virtual world. That's a compelling reality and plot point for everything that happens inside the Matrix. And that simply doesn't exist here. It's Like, I don't care if people get derezzed, because all it means is, like, they have to reboot their avatar. Like, who gives a shit? Like, they're just going to be back. Right. Like, there's no consequence. You can't play the game anymore. Be, that would be a gift for so many of the people playing the game. So many parents would rejoice. Parents would probably get in the game and kill their kid <laughs> just, just to be like, see, now you can't play the game anymore. <laughs> you got the trash. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: See, but what I'm enjoying is Tamara's dilemma of she can't de because she's just software and her learning how to live in that world and figuring out what's going on, I think interesting. So I don't care if the rest of them come back or not. I'm not engaged in them. I'm engaged by her, her journey.
3: That's one thing I found promising was Tamara as a character, because last episode I talked about, I thought Lacey was one of the few characters that I found sympathetic because she didn't have as many bad attributes and she was trying to just find a way out of this really crazy situation. And you can almost associate yourself with that. Tamara She's a victim, and she doesn't want to be there, and you can sympathize with that. And she has wherewithal, because she has, like, a superpower, because she can't be killed, to give her a little bit of moxie.
2: I just wish she knew kung fu. Like, if she knew kung fu, I would have been like, yes! But no kung fu. And
1: I thought it was a powerful line when the guy says to her, none of this is real, and she says, it is to me. And I just thought that was pretty powerful, and it helped to sell the story.
3: The comparison that I draw is between Tamara and Zoe. It was very apparent in this episode because Greystone and Zoe did not show up for the first half. First two acts, they didn't exist at all. And then finally they showed up a little bit, and I was like, oh yeah, I hadn't really missed them very much. Because Zoe is just sort of like this spoiled brat that's inside this machine. And if you compare her to Tamara, Zoe has been, perhaps purposefully by the showrunners, she has a messianic complex where she's like, I need to get to Gemini, I'm a trinity, I need to get over there a little bit full of herself in that way, right? Tamara scared running for her life, very confused, and I wonder if at some point the two of them will have a face off of some kind and You're kind of rooting for Tamara (laughs) because she's not as much of a bitch.
1: Yeah. I'm not engaged with Zoe at all. There was that little moment when Daniel's going and there's a genius inside this body and she looks all proud, Mm -hmm. but she's not telling her dad. I think we talked about that before. Why aren't you saying I'm in here? I still exist. What? purpose is this hiding this from her mom and dad Serve. i don't get that
3: i don't get that either that's something they made a decision about several episodes ago apparently to me it's one of the big flaws of the show i don't understand that decision at all why she is just being silent
0: well she was rebelling to her parents before she died why all of a sudden would she be all opposite just because she happens to be in the body of a robot she's still a rebellious kid she's just a rebellious
3: now, they cover that because in the, the movie, before she dies, she sends the text to her mom that says, Don't live in regret. I forgive you, or something along those lines. So even though she was leaving, she was like, I'm sorry. You know, we left on bad terms. I still love you, blah, 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 blah. And after the fact, after she's dead, and she sees that her parents are grieving, just they just can't handle it. They're broken up. They're just going, they're a wreck. Unless she's like a totally emotionalist machine, which she's not, then she would see that, oh, they do love me. They do care about me. I was just a petulant child. Oh, and look, my dad made an avatar of me because he misses me so much. And yet she doesn't. I'm sorry. It's a bad move on their part.
1: I agree with Brian that I was like, are they going to show her when they're ripping off the arm? Of course, they cut the body. So they didn't see. I would have liked to seen a little more of the human interaction. I mean the whole point they keep going back and forth between it's a robot, it's Zoe, it's a robot, it's a Zoe. We don't want you to forget that this is really a little girl in this big <laughs> monster robot. And so they missed a point to use that that they've established.
3: And just to be clear, I don't want to see her actually ripping her arm off. I just would like to see a more of a close up of her face and her reaction.
1: A couple of squirts I, of blood, all la mash would have been nice. I totally understood what you were saying.
2: One question I have is how much of the U eighty seven is programming and how much of it is Zoe? Because Zoe, I have a feeling, like if her dad kind of told her to rip her arm off, Zoe would just go like, "OMG, you." To a certain extent, his whole premise is this thing has been programmed to obey me and it will do anything I say. And Zoe has not established herself as a character that would do anything he says.
3: This episode was directed by Michael Dankin, who is one of my favorite BSG directors. Seeing the show in his hands, I was looking forward to this one to begin with, and I was very pleased seeing it executed as well done as it was. That being said, there was one part of this episode... Well, there's two things about this episode from a production standpoint that I felt was not quite right. And one of them was that rip-off-your-arm scene. He says, rip-off-your-arm, and you don't see coverage. You don't see a shot of her, the Zoe character, not the Cylon, but of Zoe. You don't see her reaction as a person. You don't see her grimacing her face like, should I do this? You don't see a close-up of her face as she's doing it. You don't know what her, her emotion is at the time. All you see is... The machine doing it. I thought that was a mistake because I want to know, like you said, what made her follow that instruction? Was it that she's bound to do what he says? I don't think so. I think she has her own decisions that she can make. But I wish that they had shown her at that moment. To me, that would have told a lot about her and her character. His little speech was pretty cool. And when he started talking about, we have a new path that we can follow with our company. We have this new creation that can walk with us. And when he said those words, I was like... This is interesting because he's making it sound like what the silence in Battlestar Galactica always wanted. They wanted to be treated as people, as actual beings. So that first part of the sentence was very cool. But then he transitioned almost immediately to how they were going to be silent workers who would never take breaks. And they could do basically slaves. So the turn was really quick. And I'm sure that was very intentional by the writers.
1: I like that storyline. You talked earlier about just the women having to give the stirring speech and, you know, hey, go out there and win one for the Gipper. But that was a nice connection from a husband and wife who've gone through a lot together. I appreciated the fact that she reminded him where he came from. For the first time, I bought that. Okay. This guy is a Steve Jobs of this word. He is a Michael Dell. He is a visionary. And when he goes, look, we're losing a revenue every year on this thing. And by for long, no one's going to want to pay for this. We've got to move forward. That worked for me. And then when you see, we know what's going to happen with Cylons. So in this case, it works where he starts talking about this new race they're creating and how they'll be a permanent slave society. My words, not his. You go, yeah, that's not going to work out well.
2: I agree. I think the scene was a pivotal scene for the series so far, but I think it really is. I think it did anchor itself back to Galactica in the most tangible way so far. To Jesse's point, yeah, it worked. Like The drama of it and the the interplay with the wife and the relationship and the lead-in, everything about it, I thought, worked really well.
3: And I do agree with Byrne that it's a turning point in terms of connecting it to Battlestar Galactica as well. And Greystone didn't have a lot of scenes in this episode, but that one was very critical. I do think it's interesting that they have seemed also to have changed the purpose of what the Cylon is supposed to do, because in the movie, the U87 is introduced solely as a soldier to fight and to do battle. And it basically looks just like a regular first-generation, first Cylon war Cylon. In this speech, he talks more about how they can be workers who can never take breaks and will work 24 hours a day. And that's kind of how I first envisioned when I heard about Caprica, that Cylons would be kind of like the drones that did all the work. So it almost sounds like they're making now the Cylons, instead of just being purely soldiers, they will be picking up the garbage, they'll be doing all this other stuff. As much as the Daniel Greystone appearance was pivotal and critical to this episode and perhaps this season... I do feel that Amanda in this episode had so little to do. I echo my worries of the last podcast. I hope that she's just, again, not going to just be the duala supporting character and has more to do.
2: I think they opened a the door for her when she went on the television show. At least they've opened a door for her where she could take on perhaps a greater role in some other capacity, if not a doctor.
3: Speaking of the TV show, I was obviously not a big fan. I was just the opposite. I hated that. But one thing I could see good coming out of having the Sarno show was if Sarno, the character himself, had more of a role going on forward. Like for whatever reason, they need either the media or some sort of station or him as a mouthpiece or something to make him important later on. That would have made it palatable for me if he had more than just being this guy that gave them a stage literally for them to go up there and make nice with the public.
1: If nothing else, I think it would be a nice touch if they continue having clips of his monologues kind of as a narrative device because I like the character. I like the interview more than you did. I thought it kind of set them back where they needed to be after the horrible, my daughter's a terrorist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she slept with a boy without telling me
2: <laughs> the show is doing a couple things that i really like and they both could be disastrous <laughs> one is they introduce these characters that have a lot of potential that you kind of like and you want to see more of so the Patton oswald talk show host mm-hmm. had never really given it much thought until you just mentioned it but to understand the complexity of him as an editorial voice or as a voice for kind of like Social influence in society, like he's clearly an influential character. To kind of get inside his head a little bit would be really interesting. The other characters that I'm really enjoying are the cops and the storyline of this kind of cat and mouse game. There's a crime that was committed, and by golly, like there's these intrepid cops who are kind of on the fence to like solve this crime and this mystery. And what are they going to uncover? What's interesting is there, there are all these people to cheer for mm. and all of these kind of dangers lurking around the corner with all these little mini storylines that they have. I like them. I want to see more of them. The risk I see happening is this show is perhaps trying to bite off and do too many different things and is diluting too many different stories. Because I see that happening now. Like if we actually put up on the board like all the different arcs that are happening, I would quickly lose count.
3: One of the reasons I would like to see more Sarno is because the media aspect of it does intrigue me. I kind of like that angle. And when The Wire, the best drama ever, went and tackled media, that was something that was very interesting. But I don't know if they can because it's just, there's only so many things you can put in there without it totally messing things up.
2: Well, what I really liked about The Wire, and of course, totally different show in, in every respect, production, budget, everything, right? But what I really liked about The Wire is they didn't just take the media story and pepper it across all four seasons. They devoted an entire season to it. Like you never saw that aspect of the show until the very last season. Same thing for the Union. Like all of a sudden second season, they left the first season and all of the arcana that they had created in the first season more or less behind and created this whole other perspective on the show. And then season three came around and then the Union disappeared again. Like, what happened to all of those characters? (laughs) Where did they go? How are they relevant? I don't think many shows could pull that off. And while I can give The Wire great props for that, it would be cool if Caprica could pull off something like that, where they could really dive deep into a story the way they did in The Wire, and then not just break up the entire series in acts, the way they broke The Wire up in acts across the entire series.
1: Yeah, they need to know where they're trying to get and what story they're trying to tell. I'm very encouraged after seeing this episode. We haven't even gotten to the Adama subplots, but I'm cautiously optimistic that they have a path that they're going to try to take us on.
3: I mentioned before there's two things about the episode that I thought was not done the way I would have expected. The second thing was when they showed little Toron an outside exterior shot, it's like totally this yellow filter where it seems like it's very dry and dusty. And I'm like, well, you know, this is just like a burb of New Caprica, right? I mean, it's, it's like, is the sun just hit that one corner neighborhood a certain way? And you walk two more blocks and suddenly it's sunny and, you know, there's fountains and stuff. That was a little bit too much for me. I'm like, you could have toned down the filter a little bit right there.
2: Yeah, I need to see a little bit of the Brooklyn cityscape in the great fly-throughs where they show the big, bright, gleaming city on a hill of Caprica. You need to see the slums in those shots, too.
3: And one other thing which I found to be annoying and I fear that it will continue is every time they go to V-World, and it doesn't matter if it's coming out of an act break, it could be within an act, they're showing now this visual cue, this rezzing that occurs. After like the third or fourth time, I'm like, okay. <laughs>
1: Okay, we get, we get it. it.
3: And you know what? We're yeah. on the sci-fi channel and you know BSG used to one of their hallmarks was we know our viewers are smart. We're not going to treat them as right. stupid. Uh you're treating us like mm-hmm. we're stupid. I get that they're in the V world. Okay?
2: Yeah. If you see Tamara, V World. Yeah. Yes. Like, you don't need any other <laughs> establishing context.
1: I really liked the memorial service. I did not view that as putting BSG to rest, though I think that certainly is appropriate and I'm jealous I didn't see it. <laughs> I really like Sam. I like the character. And I guess that's sad to say that I like the gangster. But it seems that he's
2: trying to be a good uncle and a good brother. It seems like what they're doing with Joseph Adama, he seems really schizophrenic as a character. Mm-hmm. One episode, he's really strong. And the next episode, he's really weak. And that's really bothersome. Because what I thought was really interesting is I started this show and I had this picture of Adama in my head, Joe Adama trying to be the kind of good son in this family. And as it turns out, he is possibly, I mean, it seemed to me a couple episodes ago that he's a crime boss. (laughs) Like all this time, like he kind of leads this dual life. One on the outside as a prosecutor and on the other behind the scenes as a crime boss. That to me, I thought was so cool. And then they kind of go back and forth where you don't know who's running that family, who's strong, whoever's writing for that character. They're all over the map and it's really unfortunate. I feel
1: like Daniel Greystone's story has progressed where his grief and now then the Mayacopa, Mayacopa, and now then he's at a low point and decides how he's going to lose his company. That seems to make a progression. But, you know, at one point, Adama. Is kind of optimistic and I'm going to be forward. Then he's all vengeful. I mean, he's not even going into the correct stages of grief in the right order. <laughs> I would complain about that.
3: Yeah, I think of all the characters that are disappointing. I would say Adama, Joseph Adama. I agree.
1: And that's a great actor, but I don't know if they've given him a good direction yet.
3: I've been thinking about trying to
2: understand where Capric went wrong at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And where BSG, what it did well, because they started so differently and they hooked me. Like BSG, it hooked me very early and Caprica just, it didn't. I asked myself what was behind that. And the last podcast, you guys talked a lot about characters and about Mm -hmm. attachment to characters, especially in a kind of reference to The Sopranos. And for me, it takes time for me to develop attachments to the characters Like, I was not attached to any of the characters of BSG at the end of 33. Like, there wasn't a character that I was just like, oh, man, I really care about what's happening with them. To me, that takes time. But what BSG had was imminent danger to everyone. You were bound to them out of a sense of humanity. Like, you were human, they were human, and they were nearing extinction. And you are invested in the, the group as a whole. And slowly over time you develop kind of attachments to individual characters. And that's one of the things I feel is really missing from this show. There's not enough there's not enough danger. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right term. I think tension I
3: is what more. I think about when I think about what's missing. There's that underlying tension that's missing.
2: The phrase that resonated with me the strongest was this idea of having the story pulling you along. Like you have to be pulled. And I agree wholeheartedly that that's something that Caprica is really missing. Mm-hmm. It's not pulling me. It's just starting to tug at me. But it never pulled at me from the beginning.
3: Just Speaking of character, I was thinking about this today, actually. Like you, I was thinking, what are the differences between early stages of Battlestar Galactica and early stages of Caprica? And I do think character is one of the things that's not there, which was there in Battlestar. And my example is, remember the episode where Baltar is accused by Shelley Godfried, she framed him for doing the codes and you know they lock him up and gata is in the background solving the mystery or trying to decode the video of him supposedly doing the deed and there's the scenes of gata and like is kind of like the smithers to the burns in the simpsons he obviously looks up to baltar and
2: and he is gay he is gay <laughs> he is-
3: even from that early stage, there's people who were Gaeta fans because they were like, I remember that episode, him interacting with Baltar and just the scenes they had. Part of it's the actors, but, you know, they got great actors in Caprica too. But I just think the characters that they had were just really well done. Even small characters at the time like Gaeta, you know, not even knowing that Gaeta further on down the line would lead a mutiny and be critical to the end game of the series. But even back then, there was like little characters like that.
1: Brian, the counterpoint is my sister-in-law, who has not watched an episode of BSG. She was like, "Don't you just love Caprica?" (laughs) And I'm just out of the blue, and I'm like, "Well, what do you mean? I just loving it. I cannot wait to see it. This is great." And I'm, I hate to douse the fire. I'm like, (laughs) "Eh, you know." But (laughs) you know, she is just thrilled, Mm -hmm. and I just think it's a little slower. I don't think it's as A compelling storyline. I don't really have anyone to cheer for yet. Who am I wanting to win and succeed? Where's the emotional hook? So that's I think where I come from. And this episode gave me, I like Mm Tamra. I'm cheering for Tamra. And Tamra's not even real, which makes it even more tragic. Yes. This bittersweetness of like, she can't win. She can't win. But I'm going to cheer
2: for her anyway and hope that something works out. I'm waiting for that moment of when I'm going to show this to my wife because I have one chance. I will ask her to sit down and watch it with me one night. And if it sucks and I choose the wrong episode, I'm toast. She'll never watch it again. (laughs) If I get it right, like I could actually have a sci-fi show to watch with my wife. I wonder if this will be that episode, but I will say that this episode we just saw was the first episode that gave me hope Mm -hmm. that Caprica could be a show she could watch.
3: Yeah. And we talked about the differences between this and the other show. And at the beginning, there was bound to be comparisons to 33. There's just, it's inevitable. I don't know at the time if it would have been even possible for them to have created one like that, because like we've said, there is no real danger to anybody unless they would have perhaps, if this had been the first episode and they'd introduce something like this, I think that would have been almost more of a hook.
2: Did you watch Kings with Ian McShane? That was set within the context of war. And I just wonder if, if they had opened this show in the context of war, they kept a kind of a militaristic aspect to it, but they showed the military-industrial complex, to which Greystone, obviously an integral part, where there is real danger. Like, there's real danger to real characters, and the Cylons, and the creation of the Cylons, present a real solution that you actually root for and see rationale behind. But you also know at the same time that this choice, which in the present, the present, of course, of the show, makes perfect sense, proves down the road to be a kind of great
3: disaster. And I'm totally just brainstorming this out, but I'm thinking a way it would have been cool is if, say, you open it with a Marine squad that has to go on a mission perhaps to take out or rescue someone from a terrorist camp or something. Then you can introduce maybe there's some sort of civil war going on in one of the colonies or something like that. And then to bring it as a hook, you have one of the members of the squad be Greystone's son or daughter. Like he has another one who's in the Marines. And so one of the reasons he wants to make a robot, give him a reason, make him say, let's take out the danger. And that would be one of the reasons why a person who created a holoband would be doing defense work.
1: You know, if I was Ron Moore doing this, I would have started earlier in the story cycle where I would have gotten to know Tamra and Lacey and Zoe and developed their characters more. And then halfway through the season, have the bomb blow up where I'm invested in the characters before and then be a little bit shocked, hey, they've killed these characters, and what are they going to do? By doing it that early, we've talked about we could care less about Zoe. That's not a good thing when that's one of your leads.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Too bad we're not writing a show. (laughs)
1: Yes. Yeah. It's easy for us. We're sitting here drinking our beverage of choice, just saying, versus staring at the empty computer screen going, let me get this and have it done by a certain time.
2: Oh, and Ron Moore with his scotch and cigarette, whatever he's smoking in his house in Berkeley is totally sober when he's writing. <laughs> oh, good point.
3: <laughs> it does make me wonder because the Caprica script did exist many years ago. I don't remember the exact date that's actually listed on the draft, but it floated in limbo for a long, long time before Caprica was picked up by Sci Fi as a first as a movie pilot and then as a series. There were revisions made along the way, but what would have kept them from doing something like that? Where After they had got to this final season of Battlestar Galactica, and they're like, okay, we do want to do another series. We took this script out. We're looking at it. What would you change now that it's been in your drawer for a year or two? I'm surprised that they didn't do anything really to it.
1: You know, and they originally had talked about this was going to be Dallas in the BSG universe. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I wanted something that campy or that soap opera, but a family saga and seeing where they came from and you know we thought that we were going to get a lot of the stones and the adamas and corporate intrigue and he's an attorney and this law stuff and you know immediately the daughters of the two main characters dying and it's all of a sudden in a place where you know i'm like burn i won't show my wife this because she's just gonna go why don't i want to watch this depressing stuff <laughs>
3: Well, BSG wasn't exactly uh, all teddy bears and roses either. I mean, that was...
1: No, no, no.
3: That was grim stuff. I mean, they had, just in the miniseries, they had the apocalypse happens to a bunch of places. The little girl in the uh, agriculture ship, (laughs) who was only a teddy bear, she she, she died. (laughs) Oh, God. That
2: was horrible. But
1: you had someone to root for. Mm -hmm. The whole, we're going to march to Earth and we will survive you know, had that going for it.
3: I think one thing too, missing from Caprica that was in Battlestar is the sensuality. Not that I want them to explicitly or just for the sake of doing it, but it does seem like for all else that they're doing, I don't see like the relationships they have on the screen. One of the things that you could say about Battlestar was, you know, the way people reacted and, and there was a key thing from the miniseries was at the end when Dualla and Billy When they shared that moment in the hallway, that was key. And again, it doesn't have to be necessarily, they have to like have gratuitous, sensual scenes a la strip clubs in the plan movie. None of that crap, but I'm not getting. I think the word you're looking for is intimacy. Intimacy, yeah. There's no, like the intimacy is missing. And like Amanda and Daniel, they've got issues going on and keep bringing it up, but we've yet to see whether they will bring back. The uh, omitted part from the pilot script where she had, had had an affair with Virgis or not. There's just no intimacy. And the closest they've come is having Lacey kind of flirting with the other boy from her high school, which that's not doing it for me. There's just not enough there.
1: And I think maybe that's why I, I enjoy the scene where they talk about when they were young mm-hmm. and how he first started the company that showed an intimacy that was you're cheering for this couple.
3: Right.
2: All right, gentlemen, put on your seatbelts because I'm about to take us in a different direction. Uh Very suddenly. I'm surprised no one has talked about the credit sequence. (laughs) Because as long as we're comparing and contrasting these two shows. BSG, great credit sequence. Caprica, holy crap, worst credit sequence ever. (laughs) It is the cheesiest. It is just, oh God, it is produced so horribly. I mean, it's like the 80s V. It's almost that bad.
1: (laughs) Since I always PVR it... I just skipped through the credits. So now I'm going to have to watch that to be able to comment. I do not necessarily like the previously on Caprica where each person is doing their
2: internal thoughts yeah, about I hate that. When I watched BSG with my friends, we watched the credit sequence. There were huge contingents of us that would say in spite of the PVR, we, no, 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 everyone, we have to watch the credit sequence <laughs> because it was such an important build to the show, the music, the little words they flash on the screen and the number of humans that are still surviving. Everyone has wanted to watch the credit sequence. Now I'm like, bloop, bloop, I'm done. Skip it. Forget it. I have no interest in watching the credit sequence. And that, it seems like such a little thing. But there are those shows for which the credit sequence sets the stage so well. And it sets it every week. It's six feet under. I mean, I could go off on all the kind of really great show in credit sequences. But it's a damn shame that Caprica really, really screwed the pooch mm-hmm. on the credit sequence.
3: I don't know if I like it or not. It's one of those things where sometimes you can't decide whether you like it or not, or if you're in favor. And usually that means that you're not. <laughs> to listen to an earlier podcast from David Icke, where they do talk about it, and they say they wanted to try something that was a more old school, whereas nowadays, like, he kind of made a veil reference to a show that just was the name of the show, on Black and White. And I think he was talking about Lost. That's one extreme, obviously. All right. How about we give our grades for the episode? Uh, I've been leading off first, so I guess I'll continue. I will give it a B. I still have yet to have like the best of the best, and that's something that made me say, wow, that was so good. I want to watch that again. But I do look forward to the next couple episodes because this episode, as I mentioned, was directed by Michael Nankin, and the next two are as well, and I'm anxious to see what happens. Uh, I'm
1: going to give it a B minus because it didn't have QB one in it, and you know every show is better with Scott Porter. But a B minus, and certainly showing potential.
3: Hold on a minute. Whoa! So your grade is lower than mine. <laughs> yes. Holy,
1: unprecedented. <laughs> I guess I could give it a B if so we will make. No, things no, right. don't
2: ruin it. Don't ruin okay. it. Don't ruin it.
0: I really enjoyed it. I have no idea where it's going, but as a standalone episode. It was fun. I had lots of fun watching it. You know, you guys know me. I grade on entertainment value, so I'll give it a, uh, a B. I'm
2: with Brian and Dimitri. Solid B. Well, I don't know if I would call it solid, but it's definitely a B. And what I can say about this episode that has not been true, by and large, for any of the other episodes, is I am hopeful for the first time. Amen. Amen to that.
1: Uh, or so say we all. <laughs> I, I So say we all. I definitely. <laughs>
3: Okay, I think that will wrap up this episode. We look forward to getting some emails and voicemails from you. Again, our voicemail is 301-358-5175. Our email is gcorum at com. Thank you for subscribing. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Bye. So say we all. And what is everyone drinking this evening? Diet Coke. Diet Dr. Pepper. Oh, guys, guys, guys. What do you got, Brian? So just, well, I'm no no—I'm hardly any better. I have Sierra.
3: <laughs>
2: but at least, at least, gentlemen, it's got hops. At least it's alcoholic. I'll say that. Oh.
3: I'm going to pull out. <laughs> Brian, don't pull it out, man. <laughs> All dudes here. <laughs> uh, I will drink a Wild Goose Oatmeal Stout. Ooh.
1: It's not just for breakfast. Nope. (laughs) It's not.